Good morning, everybody. Welcome to Thy Strong Word. I'm Pastor A.J. Espinosa. We're reading the entire Bible out loud, book by book, chapter by chapter. Here we are in Revelation chapter 11. This uh, this one's this one's a doozy. I mean, in only the best way, though. There's so much going on here. Finally, there is the seventh trumpet. Uh, the, we've been waiting for this this whole sequence here. We kind of had this interlude last time in chapter 10, uh, but the seventh trumpet blast, um, and you get well. I mean, it's just you kind of get everything, right? But on the other hand, it's kind of like you get uh, nothing, right? Like, well, where's the big disaster? Where's the angel that comes down from heaven and does all this stuff? Uh, so what, what's going on here? Um, so it's a, it's very peculiar when it finally hits. And then before that though, you have the two witnesses and what, what's up with this? You got these two witnesses. It says that they, they go around in sackcloth for 1,260 days. Uh, who are these people? Can we identify them? Um, I have my own idea, but we'll see. We'll read through this together and we're just trying to put this in context in the end, I think we see it by the end of chapter 11. This is, again, another one of these messages that the Lord Jesus has for us, that God has seen us through all kinds of things in the past. He's going to see us through what we have going on today. Joining us, we have Pastor Stephen Tice from Frona, Missouri, joining us on the phone. Good morning, brother. So good to have you back with us. How are you um, and everyone out there? in uh, it's uh, Perry County, right? Yes, sir. Well, thank you. Uh, I am well, my family as well. We've had a number of folks in our community who have uh, been infected with the, the, the virus, um, but as of right now, none of those people have died. The uh, containment is working to reduce infection, and the people who have received treatment are, are all in recovery as of the last uh, message I had. So we are thankful to God Very for his good. gift of healing and medicine and people who coordinate those things for us. And praise God. That's, that's good news. Um, yeah, no, like I was very grateful over here, I think, in Lake Forest, um, you know, which is the, the place in Orange County uh, where, where I'm at right here. I think we have something like 15 or like 25 cases total or something. So um, we, we've been um, we've been very blessed. Uh, very, very low numbers. Uh, you know, and we keep saying this here. So, you know, when we're, we're talking about things like, you know, uh, plagues, right? Mm -hmm. uh, that seems to be a word that comes up again and again in Revelation. In fact, yeah. we have um, the word plague come up yet again <laughs> here yes, in Revelation chapter 11. It, it certainly does. And, and I think there's something very, very interesting as, as I was doing some reading and study on this. Years ago when I was a student at the seminary, which was decades ago, just, you know, <laughs> right. I actually had a, a course in Revelation uh, taught by Dr. Lewis Brighton. Wow. So, so I've, I've since seminary been uh, focused on some elements of Revelation that are particularly applicable to this chapter. We'll get into it, especially toward the very end. But uh, oh, wow. just want to let you know that right. some of my thoughts are percolating for decades. Okay. Very good. Well, that's, that's fantastic because uh, I've had some thoughts that have been percolating for a few days, so <laughs> we'll just let them all mix in together in the pot, and I'll, I'm really looking forward to hearing what 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 you've uh, been able to reflect on. Uh, so okay. let's turn to the text as we do so. Would you pray for us and for our listeners and for all of our brothers and sisters all over? Certainly. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. 
This one true God to whom we come in prayer has made a promise. Before they call, I will answer. While they are yet speaking, I will hear. So boldly we come before the throne of grace. Good and gracious God, we give thanks to you that you have given to us a revelation of your love in the person of the Son, Jesus, our Savior. In this revelation, you have made known to us that death does not win the victory and that Satan is already under your dominion. Continue to give us peace as we reflect on your word and by your spirit are led into all truth. We ask your comfort and strength, your healing hand for those who are ill, wherever they may be, for the caregivers who respond to their needs, patience and strength for family members of those who are in ill health or those caring for them as well who are concerned about their loved ones. You have that same great concern. Your love for your creation is unending. Gracious God, we ask you, bless us today with your spirit as we study and with the gift of health and healing as you will in your time for our good and your glory. We ask all this in the name of he who is living and death can no longer hold, Jesus our Savior. Amen. Amen. All right. Let's just read here. I just want to read just the first two verses because as soon as we do, I think there's there's a couple things that um that will jump out at us. One, just you read the first two verses and already immediately uh, we're reminded of something that we read not very long ago in Zechariah. Um, and we're going to see even more Zechariah stuff. Um, but also in these just these first few verses, um, it, it seems like you kind of get the it's the other shoe dropping from chapter 10. So we'll have a, a good opportunity to, to put these things together. So <clears throat> here's just the first two verses of Revelation chapter 11. Then I was given a measuring rod like a staff, and I was told, rise and measure the temple of God and the altar and those who worship there. But do not measure the court outside the temple. Leave that out, for it is given over to the nations, and they will trample the holy city for 42 months. Okay. So, yeah, uh, yeah as, as I was just saying, there, there's I feel like there's kind of two things. Um, you, you got the kind of broader biblical context um, that takes us back to Zechariah. Because we remember that back in Zechariah, he had a vision of an angel that was sent to go and measure the holy city of Jerusalem. And mm-hmm. you go, and it's very, it's just very interesting. We, we kind of puzzled over it when we saw this. He, he's sent to go and measure things. He's got um, like this, uh, this measuring line, right? And he right. goes, and then another angel pops out and says, what? No, no, no. Tell him to stop um, because he's telling him not to measure then the walls around Jerusalem, because it's supposed to be a city without walls. That was back in mm-hmm. Zechariah chapter 2. So this, on the one hand, seems a lot like Zechariah, but on the other hand, there's this connection to, I think, chapter 10, because, I mean, if, if we're not tracking with this, we're like, hang on a second, why are we talking about the temple? But as we saw last time, there is a temple connection that was even there previously. What, what are you thinking? Well, the, the temple is... is not merely a physical thing. Jesus is the one who said, destroy this temple in three days, I will raise it up again. Right. A temple not made with hands. So in Revelation, when we hear temple, we have to keep in mind that this is a, a symbol for the whole church of Christ. This isn't just the building in the city that our minds tend to go to when we hear the word temple, Jerusalem together, we think of a physical building. But right. in, in Revelation, this is always a connection to the church and the people of God. So 
when we hear about the temple, it's it's the place that Christ has sanctified for himself and remains holy for him. And and so he's got a spot that's, for lack of a better label, safe and secure in the midst of destruction. Right. Yeah, and, and that was, it was something interesting because I noticed here that you had this very specific mention of the court outside the temple, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And um, and that and that's that's pretty. It's, it's struck me as very very specific, right? Um, and, and I and I was kind of thinking about it, and I was thinking, you know, I wonder if that's kind of speaking to the point you were just making, if that if that perhaps what's going on here is that we are talking about. Um, the physical temple that's there in Jerusalem, um, but that we're also, as you were saying, talking about the temple as in like the true temple, right? Which is the the body of Christ, you know, as our Lord Himself called it, as the apostles refer to us as members and and uh, living stones that are part of the body of Christ. I wonder if if both are going on, so that the true temple is seen as. Um, the, the the temple here in the vision, but that the physical temple is only considered to be the court outside the temple, right? Yeah, so, I, think, I think what we're dealing with is is also the fact that as John has this vision, it's a, a vision about judgment to come on the city of right. Jerusalem, and right. as a physical place. So yeah, the, the two are both there at the same time. Right. So, so that's really interesting then, because then, so when when he's being given these instructions, like don't measure the the court outside the temple, that that court that he's talking about, that that's going to be given over to the Gentiles and trampled and so forth. That's the physical temple that's yeah. there in Jerusalem. But the the true temple, as you said, can't be touched because it's in Christ. It's it, it can't be harmed by the Gentiles ultimately. So so I, I mean, that's a really eloquent way of talking about both in, at once in this sort of symbolic uh-huh. language. Yeah, and, and it's pretty pretty emphatically stated in, in the way that that the instruction is given. Um, when the measuring rod is given to measure the temple and the altar, but then verse 2 says, do not measure the court, or right. even more emphatically, leave that out. Right. That's That's not included. And and it's given over to the nations who will trample the holy city. And and when right. we look at this, it's a recognition of something vitally important to keep in mind. That for the time of from the time of Christ's resurrection, his victory and then ascension, up to the very end of history, the Lord our Savior is the one who controls history. And so he's making the announcement now before it happens through John's vision that the city will be trampled. Right. And and, and it's under his control, and they'll do it for a period of time, set time, 42 months. Put that another way. God says, it's going to happen, but it'll only happen for as long as I've designated it. Once I decide it's done, then whoever's in charge doesn't make a decision. I've already made it. It's done. Right. So there's, there's this clear indication given over to the nations who will trample it, there's going to be desecration of the city right. of Jerusalem. Right. And it really it really is something how it just fits so well, both into the context of Zechariah and to the historical context that we understand from, I mean, various corroborating uh, historical sources that mm-hmm. on the one hand, you look back in Zechariah, right? And the context there is, um, well, I mean, it's it's the rebuilding of the temple. 
I mean, like we're, we're actually talking about the situation of, hey, the temple has been destroyed. Let's rebuild the temple here. Right. Um, and in here in Revelation, right, it's like the context is the physical temple, you know, in, in, in John, John's words here, um, you know, the the court outside the temple is going to be trampled. Right. But right. I mean, at the same time, then we're to understand, of course, that the true temple of God right, is being built up like the temple of the church is being built in the midst of all of this. I mean, that's the, that's the new creation number seven stuff. Mm -hmm. um, and, and that's just really, it, it lines up perfectly with history. Cause as you just said, um, how do you, uh, you know, if you do the math on 42 months, that's three and a half years. And what happened for three and a half years? I mean, it's, it's, this is, this is the, the part that I really think is interesting because I don't think all the numbers here are symbolic necessarily mm -hmm. as they are kind of veiled or kind of right. cloaked. So mm -hmm. sometimes I think they're, they're metaphors, but I think sometimes they're just kind of indirect ways of talking because 42 months is three and a half years. And we actually know from history um, from AD 70 till about um, AD 73, that's when Titus, uh, the, the future Roman emperor, um, and the Roman armies were actually breaking into the city of Jerusalem, desecrating the temple, um, and, and rounding up and, and killing all the left, uh, all the resistance that was left in the city. Yeah. And, and they were doing that for, I mean, literally about three and a half years. And we just know that from multiple historical sources. Yeah. And, and the, the, the key thought then, as we look at that historical upcoming event, is that the, the temple of God, the altar, the altar of incense is included, and those who worship there, so that all those who are truly coming to the Lord with proper worship, and, and if I can use this phrase from John 3, worshiping him in, I'm sorry, John, John 4, worshiping him in spirit and in truth, what we're dealing with is the fact that the physical location of the worship doesn't make it holy, but the right worship in that space is just still protected by God. So that right. even though the city itself will suffer, those who are followers of the Lord remain safe in him. Well, and, and like we talked about last time, uh, the irony, right, is that the, the Christians, well, I mean, before this happens, they get out of the city of Jerusalem and they, and they go to, to Pella um, up, up north and, and to the east. And so even though they, they leave uh, Jerusalem, right, they leave the city, um, as you were just saying, right, just because they have left that physical location, that doesn't change the, the status of anything, that the true mm -hmm. temple of God is there in their midst um, right. because of that right worship, because of that connection through baptism to the Lord Jesus. And so, I mean, that really is, that really is something because in, in some ways it's kind of like uh, Ezekiel's vision where, where the, the temple kind of moves, right. <laughs> um, you know, the, the God's presence departs from the temple and goes somewhere else. Um, and that's, and that's with the Christians um, who yeah. um, escape to safety. Uh, and, and we talked about that last time back in chapter 10, how um, there's this, from church history, we know that there was this, apparently this prophecy um, that the Christian community received uh, that got them out of there before all this mm -hmm. happened. So, yeah, and this so, is, yeah no, go so ahead. It's also part of that, that ongoing reality that um, I've mentioned previously years ago. Um, uh, Dr. Ed Westcott used the term when I was seminary student, he came and made a presentation on, on evangelism and, and the, the role of the church in witness and outreach. And he said the Old Testament model was centripetal. People came to the city of Jerusalem where the Holy Temple was, 
And mm. then after the resurrection and ascension, it's a centrifugal model. Jesus says, going into all the world, make disciples, disciple all people. Mm-hmm. And in order for that to fully happen effectively, part of what God allows to be done to the city of Jerusalem is the the center of worship to be knocked down. And now I'm going back to the, the Tower of Babel, or Babel, yeah. where, where right. God had already said, spread out and fill the earth, and instead they said, no, we want to stay in one place and make a name for ourselves. So God came down and pushed them out. What this destruction of the city of Jerusalem does is it removes the inclination to stay at home base, because home base isn't home anymore. And, and so the right. gospel can move out from there. Um, and I think this is a, a not necessarily a revelation element, but a reminder to us in our own day that the Lord continually calls us to move out of our comfort zone into a place where the non-believer can be found. And, and that's, right. that's done with his promise that he's already measured and kept safe his church. That, that, that's right. Yeah, no, that, that's, a, that's a really helpful reminder that, I mean, there's a consequence. If, if if the church is kept safe, if the true temple of God cannot be harmed by human hands, that should give us confidence and embolden us, as you were saying, to go out, um, you know, that, that centrifugal uh, re- uh, direction to all of this. So, yeah, very, very good, very good. Um, and speaking of going out and evangelism, there are these two witnesses. So yeah. I'm going read to read, read a chunk here about this because... Yeah, the, the question has been asked many, many times. Who are these two witnesses? Well, let's just read about them and uh, see what we see what the text says first. So this is picking it up then at verse three. And I will grant authority to my two witnesses, and they will prophesy for one thousand two hundred sixty days, clothed in sackcloth. These are the two olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. And if anyone would harm them. Fire pours from their mouth and consumes their foes. If anyone would harm them, this is how he is doomed to be killed. They have the power to shut the sky that no rain may fall during the days of their prophesying, and they have the power over the waters to turn them into blood and to strike the earth with every kind of plague as often as they desire. And when they have finished their testimony, the beast that rises from the bottomless pit will make war on them and conquer them and kill them. And their dead bodies will lie in the street of the great city that symbolically is called Sodom and Egypt, where their Lord was crucified. Mm-hmm. Okay, so pausing there. Um, I mean, this, this is really, I mean, it's, it's striking because as, as mysterious as the two witnesses have been in the history of biblical interpretation, the description is kind of actually pretty specific. I mean, it says here, that they're going to have authority to, to go and prophesy for again, you have this this uh, indirect number for three and a half years, All right? So the same period of time as mentioned earlier, um, and they they go around and there's something. I mean, it seems miraculous about the way that they're uh, doing this this prophecy on um, this testimony, um, and it says that they're killed. Um, they're killed in the streets of Jerusalem, and actually tells you exactly where. So yeah. Uh, this is this is very striking, um, and yeah, there's just all kinds of different theories about about these two. What what are your thoughts on these two witnesses? <clears throat> Excuse me. Well, there are a couple a couple things going here. Obviously, these are two witnesses who stand in in the the city of Jerusalem and speak truth. And over the years, the Christian Church has asked exactly that question: Who are these two witnesses? And 
the two things I want to say about that. First one is it's yeah. not absolutely necessary to identify them for us to get the message. But mm-hmm. the indication is that these are men appointed by Jesus, by God, and they have authority to do things that we're, we're told include sending plagues and fire coming out of their mouth and stopping the rain. And the way that they have this power to consume their foes, this, this indicates that these are people whom God has appointed as prophets in not just the, vo- the verbal sense, but in the, the deeds and, and miracle sense. The early Christian church said Elijah and Enoch, both of whom had been translated to uh-huh. heaven without dying. Um, and then the other potential here would be Moses and Elijah, who spoke with Jesus on the mountain. Again, my two witnesses. And on the mountain, right. when right. it was transfigured, Moses and Elijah were talking with him about his exodus, which was about to take place, and were discussing his ascension back to the right hand of the Father. So that these two witnesses, who have the authority to do what? Send plagues, stop rain, fire comes out. Who, who called fire down from heaven? I mean, it's Elijah and Moses. Right. And if yes, that's right. Yeah, that sounds like Elijah, right? So. Yeah, if you're doing a biblical validation of the content, holding off rain, calling on rain, sending yep. plagues, Moses mm-hmm. and Elijah. So yep. from, from the perspective of, of who's, the, who's the strongest biblical precursor to these two witnesses, that would be Moses and Elijah. And, and yep. if you think about them, they certainly yeah. speak God's truth. Absolutely. And I think that's, um, so this is like, I just, there's so much that's just kind of brilliant, I think, in the way that the language here we have. I, I think you're absolutely right. If you read, if anyone with biblical background reads this description, they have to think to themselves, Moses and Elijah. I mean, like, it's just absolutely what it sounds like. I mean, there's, there's really not anybody else. Well, I mean, something specific too is like the water into blood. I mean, that's only mm-hmm. Moses, right? And then just the power to shut the sky. I mean, that's, I mean, I mean that that really just goes pretty directly back uh, to Elijah. And you think of, uh, it's, I think it's in the book of James even, um, that that's specifically mentioned about Elijah's prayer um, right. to shut the sky. So, I mean, it, it's definitely language that we're supposed to recognize as Moses and Elijah. And yet the next question though is, okay, so they have been described as Moses and, and Elijah, but is this is this just like in the ministry of our Lord, right, where he says, oh, yeah, by the way, Elijah, that's um, John the Baptist, right? Where, where Moses and Elijah here are, are symbols for two historical figures. And what's fascinating is that you already have that in verse 8, where what is the holy city of Jerusalem called here? It's called Sodom and Egypt, Right. Yeah. I mean, that's that is that is so striking. I don't think there's any other place in the Bible where the city of Jerusalem gets called. I mean, Sodom, especially of all places. Right. So we, we have a, a double layer of um, symbolism, it seems like, where we, we have biblical um, ideas that are pointing to real historical places. Um, and I think there's something a little bit more that that we need to get into about this. But it's time for our break already. But um, hang on, everybody. We're going to talk more about this. The, these two witnesses represented by Moses and Elijah here on Nice Strong Word, Revelation 11, right when we get back.
Hello, this is Dr. Dale Meyer. Have you heard Concordia Seminary's program, Word and Work and Intersection? Every week, you can hear it on KFUO Thursdays at 2 p.m. Central Time. We visit with many interesting guests about how the Word of God applies to their daily vocations and ministries. Be sure to tune in, and may the intersection of Word and Work be busy on your corner. In this season of life, when everything seems to be constantly changing, one thing remains the same, the promises of God given to us in the Word of Christ. I'm Sarah Golseth, a digital media specialist for KFUO Radio, here at home in my spare room, to remind you all the ways you can hear the Word of Christ on KFUO Radio from wherever you call home. Our daily broadcast at KFUO.org includes talk programs, sacred music, daily chapel services, weekend worship services, and Bible studies. Our on-demand library includes many of our broadcast programs, in addition to podcasts from LCM as partners. You and your family can stream KFUO Radio at KFUO.org or on the TuneIn app. You can even ask your smart speaker to play KFUO Radio. You can also pull up your favorite podcast app and search for KFUO Radio to find all of our available podcasts. Don't forget to follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram for the latest updates as well as daily Bible verses and hymns. We are KFUO Radio, Christ for you, anytime, anywhere at KFUO.org. everybody to thy strong word i'm pastor aj espinosa we're looking at revelation chapter 11 just reading and talking about this part about these two witnesses who are described in terms of moses and elijah uh, the two very figures who testified who were witnesses um, to the lordship of jesus christ there on the mount of transfiguration and so we're just talking about this so okay is there is there a historical reference here that we're supposed to be discerning is, is there somebody who's kind of standing in the line of moses and elijah here uh, that's that's the interesting question we're turning to now. We're joined today by Pastor Stephen Tice from Frona, Missouri. Uh, and we do have an opportunity for some live questions and comments if you are listening live. The, the phone's not going to work for today, but we can still do email. If you can send an email to kfuo at kfuo.org, we can take a look at any questions or comments here that you might have. I know there's a lot of stuff going on in Revelation, so this is a good opportunity for it if you are listening live again kfuo at kfuo.org also want to make sure to thank our underwriters at the lutheran heritage foundation their website lhfmissions.org all right so yeah so okay we definitely have these um these figures described in terms of moses and elijah and i think i think brother you may have already mentioned it that later on uh, there's going to be this translation into heaven um, that's mentioned here, uh, which again will just sound just like you know Elijah. So there's there's a couple things that sound very Moses and Elijah like. Do, who do you suppose? Do you suppose that these um, that these might represent though uh, two historical individuals? Yeah, have Have you read anything or thought anything about about that possibility? Uh, there's a possibility here that they could also be represented, representative of witnesses who will follow, and and the uh, the idea is that that these are known people, that that when they're standing there, the the two witnesses, uh, these two, the olive tree and the two lampstands, so we've still got this previous connection to the 
the witnesses. So when we're looking at these individuals from history, we can we can say we don't know for sure who they are, but later uh, Christians would have had the chance to identify someone else, Joshua and Zerubbabel, also are possible uh, individuals connected here. Um, right. So we're we're continually looking at the people God has sent to bring His truth into the world. Right. And when you when you look at what's coming down the road and what happens prior to the destruction of Jerusalem, um, there you know I'm sure somewhere along the line someone else thought this is another person, but right. I, I, well, well, and I appreciate you mentioning um, Zerubbabel and um, and Joshua the high priest because that that is the second connection to the book of, of uh, Zechariah. There, right? Mm-hmm. We, yeah. we had earlier the thing about not measuring a portion of the of the temple or the city of Jerusalem, very much like what we had in Zechariah chapter two. But then this um, this part about the the two olive trees and the two lampstands that's pretty much straight out of Zechariah chapter four. Where, right. where you had a lampstand that had two olive trees um, that were by it, and uh, those those olive trees right represented Joshua the high priest and Zerubbabel who was not the king but um, he was kind of representing that that kingly authority um, in the midst of the situation of the returned exiles and so um, it's really interesting to consider then like okay now hang on was. Were there any witnesses there in the city of Jerusalem um, in this time that we're talking about, right, around the time of the fall of Jerusalem, uh, maybe who had a particular authority before God? And um, it's really crazy because the answer is emphatically yes. Um, Historically, we know that James, the brother of our Lord, the first Mm -hmm. bishop of the city of Jerusalem, um, it, it's hard to exactly pinpoint this. Um, it's either AD 62 or AD 69, but he he pretty much, if you take the latter day, um, died right before the siege of Jerusalem. And it's really something. This is related to us through the church historians Eusebius and Epiphanius. Um, it's also more or less corroborated by uh, Josephus. So this this is like really well attested um, mm-hmm. historical stuff that's not like you know somebody's theory in the last uh, ten years, but but very ancient um, testimony to it. And witness I just in the building, yeah. What's that? A witness who was in the building, and then yeah, exactly, exactly. Well, and of course we, we we have to mention, of course, when you when you have the word witness there, right? I mean, um, yeah. Yeah, martyr. I mean, that, that's where the word martyr comes from. That, that's what the word is literally in Greek. Um, you know, there it is. It says martisin there in, in the Greek. And so uh, who, who is an early Christian martyr in the city of Jerusalem? It's, it's James. And we know historically it's really quite the story that happens that in the midst of all the turmoil um, that's going on in Jerusalem, you know, everyone's scared about uh, war with Rome and hey, like what you know, like can we can we calm things down? And they go to James and they say, hey, you know, tell tell these Christians to, you know, get in line. We don't need to be, you know, clamoring about messiahs right now when when Rome is you know on our doorstep. Uh, James refuses and he says, um, you know, I mean, really, he, he he what's he say? It says he testifies, Christ himself sitteth in heaven at the right hand of the great power and shall come on the clouds of heaven. And uh, they go. He goes and he says this. And what do they do? They throw him down 
um, from on top of uh, the pinnacle of one of the buildings. And then after they do that, he doesn't die from the fall, and so they stone him. And there, as he's being stoned, um, just like um, Stephen, the martyr, and also just like our Lord Jesus Christ, he says, um, Father, um, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. And so there is James testifying to the truth of the Lord Jesus and also to the great love um, and compassion of the Lord Jesus, just um, acting like him in his final moments. It's it's no wonder that there was an early church tradition that held that the temple in the city was destroyed because of the way um, that the people of Jerusalem treated and killed um, the first bishop of Jerusalem. Yeah, and this this understanding that it's you know it's a spiritual rejection of right. of God's God's appointed witness, uh, God's leader in in the city, and and once that happens. God's witness is gone. There's nothing to protect the people because the word has departed. Right. So, yeah. No, absolutely. And it's, um, you know, I mean, it really, it, it makes, it makes a lot of sense as you're just putting it in terms of like the, these spiritual realities. Cause you know, here it is, James is giving them an opportunity for repentance. Right. And yeah. it's rejected yet again, you know, I mean, it's, so it's been rejected time and time again. Um, and so now the judgment's going to come um, because, you know, repentance is just so emphatically refused. And this is, in fact, the, the way that Revelation has been speaking so far, right? Um, back in um, chapter 9, back in verse 20, the rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues did not repent of the works of their hands, nor give up worshiping demons and idols of gold and silver and bronze and stone and wood, which cannot see or hear or walk. Or did they repent of their murders or their sorceries or their sexual morality or their thefts? So, I mean, the message in Revelation is exactly that, that, you know, God isn't, uh, you know, it's not like he, he wants to bring wrath and destruction on everybody. Uh, but you've got people preaching repentance, right? That's what it means there back in verse 3, um, that they're clothed in sackcloth. I mean, that means they're preaching repentance, right? So they're being given every opportunity to get out of this, but it's being rejected. And so all that's left is the destruction then. Yeah, and and as we look at that section, when they killed them, we're told that that the people rejoiced, and then right. they they gave gifts to each other. Right. You know, it's it's like the uh, the opposite of of giving gifts because Christ is born. They're giving gifts because the witnesses of the Messiah have been defeated or removed, at least in their opinion. And of course, this is a short-lived celebration. They're about to discover that what they're celebrating isn't real. So. Right. Well, no, so let's go ahead and read this next section then here. So we, so we have th this point here. So the bodies of these two witnesses, and you know, we've suggested who one of them might be, um, <clears throat> you know, lying in the street, um, you know, of course, you know, James here, as we're, we're saying, we know from history, um, you know, killed in this, you know, mob action, basically. Um, and then here we have in verse nine, picking it up, for three and a half days, some of the peoples and tribes and languages and nations will gaze at their bodies and refuse to let them be placed in a tomb. And those who dwell on the earth will rejoice over them and make merry and exchange presents because these two prophets had been a torment to those who dwell on the earth. But after the three and a half days, a breath of life from God entered them and they stood up on their feet and great fear fell on all those who saw them. Then they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, come up here. And they went up to heaven in a cloud, and their enemies watched them. And at that hour, there was a great earthquake, and a tenth of the city fell. 
7,000 people were killed in the earthquake, and the rest were terrified and gave glory to the God of heaven. The second woe has passed. Behold, the third woe is still to come. Yeah, we we see here this event where they, they die and they celebrate the death of of the witnesses because specifically the, these two prophets tormented those dwelling upon the earth. Right, right. They, the word of God afflicts this this accusation that these two men were bringing, even if they publicly and outwardly ignored that or rejected the words, it still attacked our conscience. And the Word right. of God does that. It, it attacks the conscience, and as Paul puts it in Romans, the conscience either accuses or excuses even the non-believer. Well, right. when the Word of God is publicly addressed to the conscience, which already has this function of, of accusing or excusing, suddenly it gets pushed into the category of always accusing. Lex Semper accuses it. The law is accusing all the time. Right. These, these people could find no peace because the truth that the two witnesses are bringing is that right. these people are wrong. And, and well, we have this, the purpose of, of course, the purpose of the preaching of repentance is to right. cause you to leave comfort seeking rescue in Christ. So, Right. Okay. Exactly. Well, and, and it's really something just how Christ-like these two witnesses end up being and the Christ-like terms that they're described in. Because, I mean, we mentioned, you know, Elijah and that kind of, you know, coming up to heaven, um, you know, that, that's kind of like him. But you look at it, right? After three and a half days, a breath of life from God entered them. Um, you know, they stand up on their feet and then they go up to heaven in a cloud um, and there's an earthquake. I mean, all of those things are descriptions, right, that line up with the death and resurrection and ascension of the Lord Jesus. So you have these two figures here who I, I think, and I don't think you necessarily need to say that this, this literally happened to James, um, just as how James, um, for instance, was not literally Moses or Elijah. Mm -hmm. sure. but, but the point is that they, um, these witnesses end up resembling the Lord Jesus in the way they act. And it's just like you were saying, I mean, the Lord Jesus was a thorn in the sides of the Judean authorities um, as he was prophesying, among other things, the destruction of the temple um, mm -hmm. and preaching repentance, right? And so um, these witnesses, they end up looking like Christ um, just through and through, through all of this. And you have um, this, this three and a half year period that's going on from 66, eight, uh, 80, 66 to 8070, uh, which is basically the time of the, the civil war, the fight for Jerusalem that was going on between the, the zealot, the different zealot factions and, um, and, and this, some of the, the popular mob movements and also the Idumeans. And then you had this other three and a half year period um, where the Romans actually break in, they breach the walls, they destroy the city. Um, and so it's just, it's really remarkable how, you know, three and a half years, three and a half years, it, it just lines up and it's all just kind of playing out just like the Lord Jesus said. Yeah. Um, and it really signals back to him. And there's, if I can just really quick before we read the next section, there, there's one other thing I'd only learned about this. Like I mentioned at the top of the hour, I learned, I learned about this just, um, just in the last couple of days, I, I really was kind of puzzling over who might the second witness be? Because I think James is mm. is kind of an obvious put, I mean, potential possibility. Um, but but there's not like a second Christian martyr who dies at this time in Jerusalem. 
right. that's like well known to history. Um, but what's interesting is in Josephus, he does talk about this is really something here. He does talk about this one figure um, who ends up looking very Christ like in the end and seems to be. You know, I'm, I'm going to read this a little bit here. It says here, four years before the war, um, when the city was enjoying profound peace and prosperity, there came to the feast at which it is the custom of all Jews to erect tabernacles to God, one Jesus, son of Ananias, a rude peasant, who suddenly began to cry out, a voice from the east, a voice from the west, a voice from the four winds, a voice against Jerusalem and, this, and the sanctuary, a voice against the bridegroom and the bride, a voice against the people. Day and night he went about all the valleys with this cry on his lips. Some of the leading citizens incensed at these ill-omened words arrested the fellow and chastised him severely. But he, without a word on his own behalf or for the private ear of those who smote him, only continued his cries as before. Mm -hmm. um, and, and, just, and just going on, it just relates this story of how um, he just accepted um, being flayed by the Roman governor and the Roman authorities, um, but he doesn't open his mouth. He just silently takes the suffering. And he, the only thing he says is, woe to Jerusalem, woe to Jerusalem. And then when they finally let him go, he continues saying, woe, woe to Jerusalem, woe to Jerusalem, until finally, um, I mean, what Josephus says, he's actually killed um, in, as the Roman catapult barrage begins, um, as Titus begins to take the city. So, I mean, just, just an amazing thing anyway that... Um, I mean, so he would have died right around the same time as James. He was preaching a message of repentance. And I mean, I don't know if this is the second witness or not, but I mean, regardless, he points back to Jesus, our Lord, I mean, just the way he talks, the way he acts, sure. and the way he suffers, and his very name, Jesus Ben Ananias. Yeah. And, you know, he's take that right back to the crucifixion. I mean, <laughs> yeah. kind of goes, oh, yeah. wow. Yeah. And I think this is this is part of what uh, Dr. Brighton always focused on as, as he instructed us in this particular course I was talking about, that, that there are elements of the book that are not specific but clear enough that you can find historical connections throughout the periods of history that make you say, wow, this could have been what he was talking about. Yeah. To the extent that we are always reminded that this book is true. Right. It's historically yeah. historically true, even if we can't identify the exact historical moment, we find historical truth that corresponds again and again to the revelation. And this is part right. of the, the whole beauty of this particular revelation. John himself is given visions and doesn't know exactly what he's seeing. And then mm -hmm. one, one quarter of what he's shown, he's told, don't write down. So right. there's more that he had that we don't have. And yet what we find here is enough to remind us that Christ's words are reliable. We can believe what he showed John. Amen. And so we, we see this continually. And while the enemies watched, they were not able to touch these men now being taken up to heaven. The voice says, come up, and now they're taken out of the range of harm. They were removed from the influence of those who seek to dishonor and destroy them. They can't do it. They can destroy, they can destroy the body. Scripture says, but not body and soul. And so the Lord That's raises right. them up and carries them That's to right. his place. That's yeah. right. They cannot destroy the soul just as uh, they cannot destroy the true temple, as, mm -hmm. as, you, were, as you were mentioning earlier. And so um, even though we, we have um, all this, which uh, seems to be 
uh, signaling the, the talking about you know the, this destruction of Jerusalem, destruction of the temple, um, the destruction of of uh, the Lord's witnesses. We we know that we know that really the, the true witness, the true temple, um, is is in Jesus Christ and cannot cannot be harmed. And that's what we're celebrating in the Easter season, right? Yeah, absolutely. Um, and just real quickly, comment on verse thirteen where we have the tenth and the seven thousand. That, oh yeah, that sure. Number, yeah, that number seven thousand is always an indication that God is the one who's doing the killing. That's right. The number of seven, of course, affiliated with connected to God and His work, creation. The seventh day was God's day of of finishing the task. But then the the number thousand is ten times ten, times mm-hmm. ten, a triple completeness. So you get the number seven thousand. This is God doing everything He exactly planned to do at this moment. God didn't leave anything unfinished when this event was completed. Everything God intended was done, and the rest are terrified, and out of fear and trepidation they give glory to God, not out of faith. Right. This is... This is uh, yeah, no, that, like yeah, no that, that's... Yeah. Well, yeah, no, I mean, uh, yeah, I know that give glory to God, right? That's a... It's a... It's a, it's a kind of ambiguous phrase, to your point. Yeah, like, it's it's not necessarily... Um, re- repentance, unfortunately, right? Um, but I mean, even in the midst of, um, you, th- you think back on Egypt, for example, right? That mm-hmm. even though you know the Egyptians didn't necessarily, you know, convert and have their hearts uh, be changed, you know, they did acknowledge, um, albeit in a painful way, uh, the power of God in those moments. Mm-hmm. Uh, very good. So. Oh, great. So we, we have this, um, yeah, this, these two witnesses then, you know, these two periods of three and a half years, which as we were saying, saying, um, you know, they do, uh, line up really historically very well um, with this particular situation. But let's consider now this seventh trumpet, because here it is. It finally, it finally comes. Uh, we've been kind of waiting. We have, we've had like a big interlude here with, for, uh, chapter 10 and now this first part of chapter 11. So here's the seventh trumpet. All right. What are we going to get? So here it is at verse 15 to the end. Then the seventh angel blew his trumpet, and there were loud voices in heaven saying, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. And the twenty-four elders who sit on their thrones before God fell on their faces and worshipped God, saying, We give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty, who is and was, for you have taken your great power and begun to reign the nations raged, but your wrath came, and the time for the dead to be judged, and for rewarding your servants, the prophets and saints, and those who fear your great name, both small and great, and for destroying the destroyers of the earth. Then God's temple in heaven was opened, and the ark of his covenant was seen within his temple. There were flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, an earthquake, and heavy hail. Powerful imagery of the celebration yeah. that occurs when this seventh trumpet is blown. Yeah. Now, it's fascinating. I mean, it's, as you said, celebration, right? I mean, isn't that just so different? The first six trumpets, um, they were blown and some kind of disaster happened. And you're expecting that this seventh one is going to be the worst, right? It says, like, the second woe has passed, the third woe is soon to come. But it's, um, it's just worship that happens. Yeah. And and what's what's happening ultimately is the witness of the church has been completed. The two witnesses have been taken back to heaven. 
And now that the witness of the church is completed, the full reign of the Son will begin in a way that, you know, remember what Jesus said, my name and salvation must be preached to the end of the earth. And not until it reaches the ends of the earth will the end come. But once the witnesses are done, once the witness work of the church is accomplished, then all authority in heaven and earth having been given to him, every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Yeshua is Hamashiach, but Yeshua is Yahweh, that Jesus Christ is Lord. And that, that's actually reflect, reflected here in the song that's being sung. Uh, we look mm-hmm. at the, the voices, the 24 elders sitting on the, their thrones. They're, they're, uh, I'm reminded of the Hebrew word, word hishtachawah, to fall down on your face and worship. Yeah. And, yeah. and there's all kinds of Hebrewisms that show up in this revelation. I mean, I, we have it recorded in Greek by the direction of the Holy Spirit, but I'm not sure whether John saw and heard everything in Greek or if he heard it in Aramaic or what, but anyway. <laughs> that, that's, yeah, that's an interesting point. Yeah, I know, it's true. And I, Well, I, I think we're actually going to see something speaking to that a little bit um, when we come up to Chapter 13. There's going to be a very specific um, connection to Hebrew and Aramaic um, when mm-hmm. it comes at least to the way that Hebrew letters are reckoned as numbers sometimes. Right. So, yeah. yeah, I think there are some certainly clear indications of um, that kind of Hebrew-Aramaic connection. Mm-hmm. And, we, and we saw actually earlier back in Chapter 9, I think it was, that the, um, the, the name of that sixth angel um, or the, the angel that came from the sixth trumpet blast is mm-hmm. given that Greek name and also that Hebrew or Aramaic name. Right. So, yeah, we do definitely have some of these uh, connections. But I, I think that's a really important aspect to bring up here because, you know, uh, th- th- this this idea of th- the full reign of God commencing, right? Mm-hmm. I, I do think this did really happen in an important way um, with, the, with the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem in AD 70 that in many ways, you know, I think in our Lord's own prophecies, um, like that are recorded in the um, the so-called like eschatological discourse in Matthew, for example, right. you know, he, he, he talks about the destruction of the temple and he says, you will see the son of man, you know, coming in the clouds in glory, that, that this is a moment where, this is a moment where God is revealing his son and he didn't necessarily, you know, literally, you know, appear in the sky and the clouds, but this is a moment where the, the reign and rule of Jesus Christ mm-hmm. is is being manifest through through what's what's happening, and and connected to that, this is really kind of um, just practically speaking a moment where the, the church is no longer kind of a you know like a sect of of Judaism at least mm-hmm. as it's perceived, right? Because before you know the Christians are there mostly in Jerusalem. Uh, they're worshiping, I mean, in the same temple that the rest of, um, you know, the, the Hebrew people are there worshiping yeah. in. Mm-hmm. So it was, at the, you know, up till this time, I mean, it's like Paul in his, in his early missionary activity, right? They were in the same synagogues even, right? So up till now, it's like, you know, we're just kind of a like a subgroup, right? We're kind of like all, are all part of this. But after this point, um, it's going to become clear in the eyes of everyone that uh, this is no mere um, splinter group. Um, I mean, this is this is the whole thing, and it's not just this little group that's here in Jerusalem. 
it's all over the world and Christianity is going to, after the destruction of Jerusalem, just like you were saying, that centrifugal force, it's going to spread all over and, and in many ways take over the world after that happens. Yeah, and and it definitely does. And it takes over in, in if I can use the term world view, uh, that's you know, currently more recent, but it also right. changed the way nations began to interact with nations and and governments who were influenced by Christian beliefs, even if they didn't know it, began to adopt right. belief practices that right. came from Christianity. And, and this is the way in which the kingdom of the cosmos of this world has become the kingdom of our Lord and his Christ. And this, you know, Handel's Messiah takes this and, and makes this into one of the chorus um, numbers in, in that celebration. And, right. and that, that celebration is the fact that we give thanks to you, Yahweh, God Almighty, yeah. and who was. For you have taken your great power and begun to reign. This is what Jesus says. I will reign. And, and all authority in heaven and earth given to me. And so the temple in heaven was opened. When was that opened? Well, the access was given when the curtain tore in two. Hmm. That's the opening of the access. And then removal right. of the vestiges takes place with the destruction of the temple in yeah. Jerusalem. And the book of Hebrews right. is, is an introduction to this whole process of the temple being no longer needed. But the way to make sure you don't go back is to burn it. Right, it. right. Yes, and we and we see that if if Christ can see us through a, a calamity like the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem, and that God shows that Christ is reigning through things like that, then certainly we have comfort in the midst of everything we are experiencing. Thank you so much, brother, for pointing us to the comfort we have in Christ in these passages. Uh, looking forward to having you on again soon. Thank you, sir. God's blessings with you and the folks out in Orange County. Thank you, brother. Appreciate it. Same to you, everybody. That was Pastor Stephen Tice of Frona, Missouri. Moving on to Revelation chapter 12 next time. Till then, I'm Pastor A.G. Espinosa. Peace. been listening to Thy Strong Word, produced by the Lutheran Church, Missouri Senate Office of National Mission in cooperation with Worldwide KFUO, the official broadcast ministry of the LCMS. Your support is vital for this program to continue. You can make a gift safe, secure, and easily online at KFUO.org. Thank you for listening and supporting Thy Strong Word.